0: Welcome into season two, episode 10 of the Sharp Angles podcast. I am Warren Sharp of sharpfootballanalysis.com and sharpfootballstats.com. Big show previewing the upcoming season, talking about a lot of interesting elements that are unique to this year. Joined this episode by Rich Rebar, our lead fantasy consultant, by Dan Pazuta, one of our analysts and our lead editor at the website, and bringing back Cleve T.A. Uh, he's going to be our betting consultant uh, this upcoming season, writing some betting pieces like he just like he did last season. Excited to bring all three of these guys together for one massive show before we get the season started. Uh, but before we jo- dive into this episode, which we're going to tackle a lot of cool things I think you're going to enjoy it, just want to mention two things. Number one, today is Thursday, August 27th. We are rolling out weekly and monthly packages for everything that we're offering. If you want to jump on board for riches, excellent outstanding fantasy analysis. You can do that just by the week. You don't have to invest for the full season. You can just jump on board for a weekly subscription. You can do the same thing for my betting content and everything else that we have up at the site, props, fantasy, uh, our DFS analysis, which is part of the fantasy product, um, all the sports betting content that you want all up there now, weekly and monthly. So make sure that you take advantage of that opportunity, which we're just starting today. And of course, guys, we're going to start the show on a sad note because we should be tonight gearing up for the dress rehearsal games. We should be watching all of these teams playing their third preseason game. Uh, everybody pretty much rests that fourth one, all the starters at least. So we should have been getting a good glimpse into what we can expect from all these coaches in a play-calling perspective and starters and rotations and things of that nature tonight and we're not going to be getting that so that's a definite disappointment Um, but let's pivot a little bit into something else that's pretty disappointing and that's injuries Um, we've seen a lot of injuries soft tissue injuries this offseason some guys out for the year already Gerald McCoy the Cowboys the Bengals Trey Waynes Cardinals starting cornerback Robert Alford Uh, we've seen a number of cornerbacks go down with injuries and then we've got guys Rich and I'll toss it to you first that are big question marks right now we don't even know yet because some of these guys most recently just got injured like David Montgomery of the Bears Le'Veon Bell of the Jets we also have Brandon Ayuk of the 49ers and Mike Williams two receivers from the West Coast he's plays with the Chargers that have gone down with injuries and we're thinking they're going to be back maybe hopefully by the start of the season but it's to be determined right now really creates a messy perspective and, you know, it's challenging because I think some of these injuries might continue to go on due to this unique off-season. We saw a lot less training early on. We just saw these guys get into pads about a week and a half ago, um, starting to go as hard as they could in practices. And really turning it up from zero to 90, uh, just like that, is very difficult. And that's where we see a lot of these soft tissue injuries Talk to me a little bit about some of your disappointments, Rich, with some of these soft tissue injuries league-wide, and then how you're adjusting and how you're making decisions from a fanny fantasy perspective based off of that.
1: And this, this has always been the concern ever since we were coming back for this ramp-up period, you know, the, the air quotes ramp-up period. Because when you go back to 2011, the only time that we even have a comparable you condensed offseason of recent memory – Uh, there was a study done that injuries were up 38%. Conditioning-based injuries were up 38% that season. And we've already started to see it kind of creep into the fold here in a week and a half of, you know, teams practicing. You know, we saw A.J. Green. uh, You mentioned Brandon Ayuk. You know, today we had David Montgomery. You know, you know those situations – uh, typically in a regular offseason, I flag and, you know, keep track of uh, these guys and I move them typically down my list or put a red flag next to a guy because guys that get hurt in the preseason typically uh, are more probable to get hurt during the season as well. So you look at these situations like David Montgomery, especially where there's no clear backup or guy to elevate because Tariq Cohen is, you know, a satellite back. He's a, he's a compartmentalized back and then they've only got Ryan Nall and Artavius Pierce, an undrafted rookie behind him. It's tough to say, you know, what kind of elevation these guys get. Do they bring in a veteran? In, uh do they make a trade uh, because if he's going to be expected to miss four to eight weeks and is missing you know the first three weeks of the season then there's another probably gradual ramp-up period getting him back up to speed again the bears buys until week 11 in a typical fantasy season which is only 13 weeks to begin with you're already talking about only having david montgomery probably available for you for about seven full weeks now and it's you know it gets a lot dicey to invest into a player like that um, when you factor in a guy like AJ Green, who's got a long history, long history of this now, you know, since you know 2015 of just lower leg injuries, and who's 32 years old, and you know had you know has missed 23 games, you know, you know over the past three years, it's tough to really you know talk yourself into you know a guy like that, even though you can say well there this upside exists, but you know it's definitely like trying to catch a falling knife in a sense where you know injury optimism has claimed a lot of people in the fantasy community over the years, myself included. Uh, You know, it definitely happens, but it's definitely something I flag and have flagged for years in in a typical preseason, let alone one that is contented and has these players trying to work a whole summer of conditioning into, you know, a three-week period. And the other thing, I've seen
0: some coaches, because they – aren't going to be trotting these guys out to play in any preseason games. Some of these coaches are being very close to the vest about these injuries at the present moment. I noted that uh, I don't think they have to actually even mention the specificity of the body part and, and, and what the injury is up until like the first injury report needed to be issued. So we're talking about a week and a half from now. Um, Dan, what have you noticed about kind of like some of these injuries from a trending perspective, as well as uh, the severity to some of the starters and how some different teams are going to be impacted
2: by them? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's something we probably would have seen at some point. And I think we're we're not can't be totally sure how much of this is dependent on there being no real practices to this point. Cause like you said, we would have had, you know, preseason games. There would have been a lot more tackling. We see a lot of injuries uh, in those games too, but um, as teams are going to adapt, yeah, there's, been a lot of, you know, big starters out, especially when we look at like the 49ers, you mentioned Brandon Ayuk. Brandon Ayuk was already supposed to be going in for um, Debo Samuel, who uh, is out for uh, an unknown period of time. So you're going to have a, a lot of guys there. We just uh, got word from uh, the Giants that uh, Xavier McKinney, rookie is going to be out. That was a defense that was already uh, going to be pretty lackluster in the secondary. Uh, now you take a guy who probably uh, would have been the starting free safety. Um, you take away some versatility that they could have had from Julian love. And now that's just going to be a complete pass funnel for uh, passing points for fantasy um, Pittsburgh Steelers. Uh, if you want to do your, uh, your fantasy uh, DFS stacks uh, in week one, uh, that's all the giants right there. So uh, I think we're, we're seeing a lot and how adaptable these, these teams are going to be is absolutely going to be a key going forward. And, you know, we're going to be seeing a lot of injuries just all the time, especially as we start to see these guys get hit a little more or week one, week one and two, might be an all time high for injuries as we see, but yeah, it's something that you definitely got to keep an eye on.
0: Yeah. And TA, one of the things that we're going to be working on that you're going to be assisting Dan and myself and a couple other people up at sharp with is more detailed analysis of the injuries and players that are going down and who their backups really are, because that is going to be a big factor uh, this upcoming season. You've got the potential for coronavirus related absences, which thank God, Fortunately, thus far, we haven't seen anything really there, but it's inevitable that something like that probably will occur. Uh, But you also have, like we said, less work for these players, more likelihood that some of these guys are going to start getting injured once they're, you know, really asked to go balls to the wall every single play uh, in a lengthy NFL 60 minute long battle uh, starting week one any insights from your perspective as to the injuries that we've seen thus far and kind of how you think that that's going to factor into the start of the season?
3: Yeah. I mean, I, it's obviously as, as Dan and and Rich mentioned, um, you know, a ton of soft tissue injuries, you know, that's kind of standard for a uh, kind of a condensed uh, off season. Uh, But when you add in the fact that there were already a bunch of guys that opted out because of COVID originally these depth charts are really getting strained. I mean, I'm looking locally here in Cleveland, you know, the Browns defense, which was already, you know, essentially mediocre um, and they're really thin at linebacker and safety already lost Mac Wilson and they lost Grant Delpit uh, a couple of days ago. So those guys are probably out for the season. You got Kevin Johnson, who's a, a big, big slot corner. Um, who came in and and he has a lacerated liver so you know you got guys who are um, you know you got teams that are already thin in certain spots getting um, you know really backed up from a from a depth chart perspective so I think um, just continually monitoring um, you know who's behind these guys um, and you know how those guys are going to factor into the season And then you add in the fact that there could be, you know, positive COVID tests. I mean, it's kind of a a cluster effect, um, especially with one position group versus another. So I think these are all things that we're all going to have to monitor. We're going to learn a lot about some guys that are, you know, third and fourth stringers you may not have never heard of before. And we're all going to be kind of catching up to speed as much as possible. So I think that's uh, definitely something that uh, we're all going to look forward to going, you know, towards the season.
0: Yeah, we're going to be keeping close eyes on that and publishing some pretty unique uh, injury-related tracking information up at Sharp Football Analysis right before week one and updating it ongoing throughout the course of the season. So I think you guys we are we're going to enjoy doing that, and that's the best type of content out there is the content that we want to produce because it's useful to us. I guarantee you it's going to be really useful to you guys as well. So stay tuned for more information on that pivoting slightly towards looking at the season itself, but still discussing how unique this offseason is and what that could mean for the start of the season. Um, The closest thing to this season that we have seen recently is the 2011 offseason. And that was when uh, there was no free agency. There was no training camp. Uh, There was an 18 week and four day period uh, where players were restricted from seeing the doctors or working out at team facilities or communicating with coaches. And the reason is because of a labor dispute and the players were locking themselves out uh, of trying to come up with this new uh, CBA. And we did end up seeing a very condensed off season, much like what we saw this year. But there's a couple of big differences, and I'm going to talk to the guys a little bit about their perspectives on how this is going to impact the season from matchup-based perspective or sports betting or DFS perspective. But first, let's contrast that 2011 offseason with this offseason that we've had right now. I just mentioned that in 2011 while players weren't allowed to go to the facilities that's the same as what we were doing now and weren't really allowed to communicate with coaches that is different this time we were allowed to communicate with coaches but the big difference was back in 2011 a lot of these guys were getting together and working out and doing things together practicing a little bit as a team during this period of lockout whereas this offseason we missed all the mini camps we missed 100% of all the in-person team activities where guys could be working out together. We did see a few teams uh, volunteer to work out a little bit. We also saw some quarterbacks travel to California with some other quarterbacks and wide receivers that don't even play with them to just get some work in. So we saw some guys try to stay a little bit active, but it wasn't close to probably the same as, as what it was back ahead of 2011. The biggest difference, however, is when they came back from 2011 after that lockout ended, Although they missed the Hall of Fame game, which is that very first lone standalone game in August, basically preseason week zero, essentially, they still played all other four weeks of the preseason. So we are entering, you know, today, Thursday, we would be seeing these guys playing in their week three dress rehearsal game to get ready for the start of the season. They still came back and had complete training camps and played all of their games. This offseason, zero games with anybody else zero joint practices with any other teams. There's been very limited interaction. You hear uh, Joe Judge talking about he's going to pop the pads of, uh, of, of Daniel Jones and try to hit him around a little bit just to let him experience what it's going to be like in a couple weeks when he gets out there week one. None of these guys have been hit. None of these guys have had any type of uh, interactions like that so far this season with other opponents. So it is very different from that sense. And there are a few takeaways that we can glean from that 2011 season with basically how the year started. So TA, first, I want to go to you and let you share a little bit about some of the trends that we noticed from a betting perspective, right out the gates of that 2011 season. And then we'll toss it over to Rich to get a little bit of perspective from from a fantasy side of things.
3: Yeah. So as you mentioned, that's probably the closest comp. There's, you know, this is obviously unprecedented times, but uh, oh, 2011 is definitely the closest comp to what we're going to see this year. And, um, you know, you look back and, and I know the general perception is that, uh, you know, no preseason and limited practices that the offenses are going to be hurt. And that could be the case with new systems and and new skill guys and maybe new offensive linemen. But in general, I think that, you know, um, I think we're sleeping on the fact that defenses are really going to take a big hit early on. You know, there is just very limited tackling that's going on right now. And, you know, it's one thing on offense to learn a new scheme. You can, you can read a playbook. You can, um, you know, talk terminology. You can study and at least, you know, catch up a little bit uh, from an offensive perspective. But on defense, the pure physical tackling, you know, you need to do that in real time. You need to practice. You need to do it in games. And so far, you know, we've barely seen that. I know from, from talking to a couple of uh, Browns beat reporters, you know, they've, the Browns have only been in pads five times so far. They've had no full tackling periods. They've had one kind of one-on-one tackling drill, and that's it. I mean, they've done nothing. And they've had, you know, they had a practice that was canceled on Sunday because of uh, a COVID scare with the lab issue. And so I think that tackling is going to be a major issue, um, especially early on. Mm-hmm. And you add in the fact that, you know, stamina is going to be a factor too. You know, these guys haven't been working out during quarantine, et cetera. So, you know, looking back to 2011, the first two weeks, the overs um, from a a betting total perspective, uh, they went over 72% of the time in the first two weeks, went 21 and eight. Um, You know, week three dipped back, the unders kind of took the lead, but then four and five again, uh, more overs and unders. I mean, the first five weeks, it was close to 62% of the totals were, we're hitting over. And if you look at just the combined total points between those teams in the first five weeks, uh, they're a little over 46 points. You look at the rest of the season, it went all the way down to 43 and a half. So defense has started to catch up. And I think that you, know, you might see something similar here. Um, again, this is just you know, theoretical and, and kind of spitballing, but I think, you know, one angle that I'm going to be looking at is especially in week one, um, finding offenses, teams that have offenses that are, uh, bringing essentially their entire skill group back, their quarterback, maybe you know same scheme. You know, you know think the Chiefs, uh, think the Packers, think the Vikings type teams, maybe Seattle, Atlanta, and try to hit some of those overs. I mean, I know um, you're looking at Green Bay, Minnesota. Their total is 46 in Week One. You know, same essentially the same teams minus Stephon Diggs, but essentially the same teams last year in December in Minnesota. So in a in a good environment, uh, that total was 47 and a half. So. You know, it doesn't really seem like that the the books have adjusted too much. Um, you know, in terms of uh, thinking that the defenses are going to struggle, it sounds like uh, just based on that that you know they think that maybe it's neutral. that maybe the offenses will struggle a little bit. So um, I would look at some of those uh, teams, some of those matchups in Week One, and you know, I, I don't know. It, to me, this is just. Pure hypothetical, but um, it's tough to really um, simulate uh, tackling uh, when you're not doing it in practice. And I'm not sure how these teams were already uh, late, late August, a couple days away from September, um, how they're going to figure out, you know, um, dust off the rust when it comes to it from a tackling perspective. So I think defenses are going to struggle here early on.
0: Yeah, and it definitely could go that way. Um, Certainly from a tackling perspective, these guys are obviously not practicing tackling um, when they're at home lifting weights during the pandemic, right? They're trying to stay in shape, and some of the skill guys are out passing the football. But I also wonder, you know, play a little devil's advocate, how this affects offensive line um, continuity and chemistry from a blocking perspective and how quickly they're going to be able to pick up that level of communication um, with one another. And in addition, you know, I know that in the early part of the offseason, that's when teams generally are practicing a lot of their passing. They don't incorporate a lot of the run game and building on the run game until closer to camp when you can put the pads on. So we missed a lot of the opportunities for these coaching staffs to be working with their quarterbacks and the receivers, especially some guys, new co- new OCs, new QBs, young QBs, and working on that passing game. So just providing a slightly different perspective, not saying that you're wrong. I am absolutely going to be continuing to process my uh, psychological L aspect of how I'm viewing this off season. But Rich, I want to talk to you a little bit about these guys from a fantasy perspective here. Do you first of all, where do you fall on which might be ahead or behind? Um, and and secondly, because I know communication is a big issue, right? And that's on both sides of the ball, the offensive line as well as as the defense. Where do you fall on that argument? And then secondly. Do you think that there could be any edge like in DFS potentially with spending a little bit more on the passing game than the running game or vice versa, based upon how some of these teams might open up
1: the season? It truly is, uh, you know, ambiguous times and it's going to be one of the most ambiguous week ones we've, you know, ever had probably ever, you know, we can pretty much definitively say that we just don't we're so much up in the air uh in you know going into this week one you know it's I I think a lot of people are thinking it's either going to go one or two ways it's either going to be sloppy all around and stamina is going to be an overall issue for both sides of the ball and we'll see guys get gassed because remember the weather is going to be warm still too for a lot of these guys in a lot of where where a lot of these games are taking place uh so is it just sloppy altogether? but I mean I do think that the NFL is still geared towards giving advantage advantages to the offense and the offense knowing where the play is going was as opposed to the defense and, you know, having an advantage, you know, inherently just on play calls. And I think that, you know, if you have a veteran quarterback and a veteran offensive line, you're getting to the right checks and, you know, those things can all be advantages as well, but those are just all narratives. You know, like we said, we're going off of all narratives right now. Um, I can personally say I'm already planning from a DFS perspective to not go in with my typical bankroll, you know, allotment that I would, you know, typically I play, you know, Fifteen to twenty percent of my bankroll in a given week, and I'll probably you know cut that in half you know in week one uh, this season just to you know kind of get a feel for what's going on you know try to see you know what's happening. I would think that the running games would have an advantage you know one because you don't like you said you don't have to pick up those checks you don't have to have as much communication and picking up blitzes. Also the stamina play the stamina you know effect narrative comes into play with the running game. You know when the Colts are playing the Jaguars and they're just pounding Marlon Mack and Jonathan Taylor and game scripts you know in their favor you know the problem i just going to keep doing that, you know, if they can. So we might see the running game have a little bit of advantage week one. I mean, typically in DFS, that's not going to really change a lot anyways because we are typically paying up for high price running backs anyways because they score the most points on a given week, and we're loading our rosters up with high price running backs regardless. So there's probably not much impact there to, like, go off of. But, yeah, truly ambiguous times. I'm probably going to slow play it a little bit. You can't do that in a fantasy stance. We're setting lineups. Um, so I'm going to play it by year, like, a little bit, like – TA said, I'm looking for continuity. I'm looking for veteran quarterbacks. I'm looking for veteran offensive lines units that have been played together. And then I'm also looking at just defensive personnel. Like Dan said, I mean, you look at this Giants team, they've got a, they are a team that has no continuity. They've already had a few injuries. They were already a team that, was you know in last year's metrics one of the easiest defenses to target and elevating players above what they were averaging coming into the games uh, in terms of fantasy points allowed so i'm going to try to pick up some of those soft spots and see if i can you know you know pick up on those and and use those to my advantage early on but absolutely truly ambiguous times here as we head into week one
0: it really is uh, now you both brought up some interesting points here uh, and that would be how coaches are adapting to what they're seeing on the field. I mean, I would think TA mentioned pace. I would think that smart coaches would be trying to come in here with the mentality to wear down the defense a little bit, but that could be tempered uh, potentially by how off kilter and erratic their offense starts out. And if their offense starts out poorly, you know, going really quick and not letting these guys settle down a little bit is just a, a a recipe to have some three and outs and give the opponent some better field position. So that's a concern, but you know, I do think going faster would be smart. And then conversely, running the ball, maybe if you're having some success and you're doing all right on the scoreboard, are there some coaches that are going to be like, this is easier? This is, Uh, although it's not going to give us as much upside, there's a higher floor on some of these plays. The defense is struggling to tackle these guys and, you know, run plays obviously chew up the clock. So will we potentially see a little bit more running the football, even though we think that, you know, from an analytics perspective, that's a poor decision for these guys to make. Dan, obviously coaching plays a role in this. Um, Each guy's going to have a slightly different strategy and I doubt any of them are going to be smart enough to reveal those to us or rather they're not going to be dumb enough to reveal those to us uh, right now. But what is your take on what we might be seeing out on the field early on, simply with the lack of a real off season and preseason this year?
2: Yeah. I think one of the interesting things is I think it goes how to, how coaches are, approaching that right now. I mean, how how these coaches are, are taking these practices and and formatting how they're getting their teams ready is going to have so much of an impact over what they do week one, week two. Um, we, you said, you know, guys like Joe Judge, who's potentially trying to get his quarterback hit uh, in practice, which doesn't seem like a great idea, especially with that offensive line. I think Daniel Jones is probably going to get hit enough um, especially with his pocket presence but um, then you look at someone like um, the Arizona Cardinals and Cliff Kingsbury there was just a, a article uh, recently from uh, Bob McManaman at um, AZ Central that was talking about how fast uh, the Cardinals are going in practice and that's not just for the offense even though that offense was already fourth in uh, seconds per play last year that was both uh, in all situations and in neutral game scripts we know that the offense is going to go fast That's getting the defense ready to potentially go fast. And that's part of what this article talked about. They talked to Vance Joseph about facing this defense uh, in practice. And he said he loves it because it's getting these guys ready. And whether the Cardinals defense right now is talented enough uh, to be ready for that and whether it's really going to matter. I think that's a really smart way to do it. You're both getting your offense ready to go fast pace and get this no huddle. That's going to surprise some defenses early on in the season. And you're getting your defense ready to, to see it. And I think when you look at uh, the run game, Apparently, uh, Cliff Kingsbury has been throwing some of those uh, runs in there. There's apparently been some plays. Uh, Vance Joseph said he ran two plays today where he pulled both tight ends and the guard, and there was just a gaping hole. Um, he said the, the run game is tough because of the quarter quarterback element. Uh, there's double pulls. There's triple pulls. Um, so I think we're going to see a lot of cool things uh, from the Cardinals uh, offense. And, and I think that's that's someone who I think is, is – one of those guys we can already see is probably a step ahead and thinking of what needs to happen in this type of off season. So I think you're just seeing both ends of the spectrum there. Um, And I think the coaches who are preparing really well are going to be giving their teams the edge early in the season.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I've seen some of uh, hard knocks and Sean McVay has been doing so much with, with his tempo as well. Just like tempo, 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 get guys up to the line, call in the plays quickly. I'll be curious to see if some of the teams that, tended to go fast last season, end up going fast to start this year, or, or even ramping it up beyond that. Um, hopefully these coaches are thinking along the th- same lines that we are uh, from that perspective. So I think now let's dive in a little bit deeper into some interesting storylines that we've uncovered in our research. And each one of us has pulled up one kind of key point, maybe not a point of contention necessarily, but just something that is going to be interesting to discuss that we found in our research. And we'll start with rich from a fantasy perspective here. And I know you've got a good take on Josh Jacobs. I'd like to hear a little bit more about the RB one from the Las Vegas Raiders uh, making their debut out in a new city this season. What do you think John Gruden is going to utilize how do you think John Green is going to utilize Josh Jacobs and what do you think about his potential this upcoming season?
1: Jacobs is a, you know, an interesting player when you just look at how they used him as a rookie and he was a hyper efficient rookie as well but you know, he was completely compartmentalized fantasy score the way they used him. I mean, he had 91.5% of his standard points come from rushing alone and 82% of his, you know, PPR fantasy points came from rushing alone, which trailed just Derrick Henry and Marlon Mack uh, among top 24 scorers last year. Uh, You know, he was 55th among all running backs and receiving points per game. You look at his games where he didn't have a touchdown in those nine games, you know, he was just the average running back 24 uh, per week. Uh, And then when you look at just in the games he played, he handled 47.7% of the Raiders' snaps when they were tied or leading, but just 32.3% when they were trailing. Now, the Raiders have kind of said all the right things about Jacobs, you know, increasing his involvement in the passing game. First, it was like he was going to catch 60 passes, and it's changed. It's kind of orbited a different number. Um, But then when you look at all the moves they've made this offseason, you know, they they draft uh, Henry Ruggs, Brian Edwards, and Lynn Bowden in the draft. They uh, sign veterans uh, for depth, and Nelson Aguilar and Jason Witten. They have Jalen Rashard back on a contract. They add theoretic. Uh, and this is a team that was already returning eighty-six percent of the targets from the twenty-nineteen season to their roster this season. So, I mean, where do they get all these extra targets from that they already that they already gave out to the players that were already rostered last year? By and they've added all this other talent, this surplus of talent, and then you know we're gonna figure this thing out right away, anyways, because after Week One they you know they play Carolina Week One, which is just the supreme cherry matchup. He's gonna be a, a top eight running back that week, but then the the through week 10 las vegas is favored just once over their opening nine weeks it's that week one game they are larger than three point dogs in six of their opening eight games in the seven games of an underdog by more than three points last year uh jacobs had just one running back one scoring week uh he was the rb 28 the rb 48 the rb 22 rb 28 rb 31 in those other games he had just two touchdowns in those games so we're gonna know right away how much truth is there but um i think that a lot of the fluff this season is, is really just at what it is. It's fluff. It's a talented player, but there is really not the passing game opportunity or slice the pie that a lot of the beat reporters are suggesting. And we talked a couple weeks ago about like the, the opinion based and not really understanding how many targets are available for a team and, you know, things like that, that get floated out. Um, Good player, bad situation to start the year for the Raiders like I said, they're huge dogs so if you got a rushing only back uh for huge uh for huge dogs weeks two through nine and one of those weeks is a bye you're gonna be you know probably really struggling or the opportunity exists for Jacobs to struggle the front half of the season uh and then maybe come on the back half of the season when their schedule opens up a little bit but their opening schedule is absolutely a nightmare
0: yeah it is so let me ask you about Tyrell Williams and how that is that you know his AC what is it an AC joint sprain he's going to play through it with a harness labrum, or third one labor <laughs> what do you think that's going to factor is that weighing it all on you know the, the the volume of the passing game you think it's just next man up and they'll continue to do what they have to do based on game script.
1: Uh, Yeah, I mean, listen, I mean, you know, Brian Edwards was a tremendous talent, one of the youngest breakouts on the college level. What's great about Brian Edwards, too, is that he's not just like a a prototypical like C uh, size guy, like a big body guy. If you go back to South Carolina, he played with some awful quarterbacks and they just got him involved in the screen game. He actually had the most screen receptions of any wide receiver last year because they just wanted to get him the football. They just want to put the ball in his hands. He's really good after the catch as well. So he would theoretically be the next man up. Uh, granted, you know, it's a rookie, and they've got a couple rookies involved here in Bowden, Edwards, and Ruggs themselves, you know, but to go with, you know, Renfro and Waller, guys that, you know, the top two targets last year. Um, but, yeah, it's just really hard to, you know, see where the targets go uh, in this offense, you know, outside of – there's just no, not enough available targets, you know, to kind of increase your running back targets win – you want to throw the ball to these other players anyways, because they're more, uh, you know, m- you know, more efficient, more, you know, add more EPA to your targets, uh, you know, than just completely giving it to your-, to your running back in these situations.
0: Have you taken him at all in any of your leagues? or Are you completely trying to fade him as much as possible? Uh, no, I'm
1: be- I'm below the market on him and have been. So I haven't been drafting him. I mean, I try to you know rank and do things on the site the way I play. So I haven't been getting much of him. I think he's a guy you would target more in season. I mean, because you look at even the matchups, even if the game script's better than we think, you know, they play four playoff teams in the first five weeks, uh, and then they come out of then they have a bye, and then they play the Buccaneers, but they place they face the Saints, the New England Patriots, and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, three teams that were just hyper aggressive and shutting down the run last year as well. Uh, and they probably project to be similar. I mean, the Saints haven't allowed a 100-yard rushers since Samaj P. Ryan. Uh, you know, so, I mean, that's how, how long it's been for the Saints, you know, giving up a, a, you know, a big rushing day on the ground to an individual rusher. So even if the game script's even better, the, the, the matchups are really tough, uh, you know, so they've got the Chiefs mixed in there, and there's two games against the Chiefs, he was really efficient, but then you look at his touches, he wasn't able to stay on the field because they were getting boat raced, you know, both games, uh, and, you know, he only, only caught one pass in, in that game, so in those two games that they played. So, yeah, it's really tough, tough uh, to kind of see where it opens up for him uh, in the front half of the schedule. I think he's a guy you would target to come and buy low on in season. And that's the way I'm, you know, approaching him going into the season.
0: I can't disagree with the schedule nor my, uh, my general opinion about that team as a whole and thus how it could lead to them being down on the scoreboard. Uh, Dan, I want to talk to you a little bit about defensive positional versatility because I know you have a piece That's about to come out on the website, but Sharp Football Analysis. I can't wait to read it. But you've got some interesting thoughts on how teams might be able to survive when they have better positional versatility on that side of the football, especially with an offseason like this, especially with, you know, lack of preseason, etc., Give me a glimpse into that maybe and, and share a couple of teams in particular where you think they might be able to do a little bit better than some of the other defenses around the league because of that positional versatility.
2: Right, and I think it's, it's so interesting because, you kind of as we talked about earlier, we're probably expecting to have offenses be a little ahead of these defenses. And I think that's the case a lot just because the offenses are usually the ones who are Um, dictating what happens. The offensive puts out their personnel, the defense reacts to it. Um, That happens a lot after the snap. There's sometimes when the defense is going to be a little more aggressive and they're a little more uh, dictating what's going on. But for the most part, the offense is doing that. And I think we're seeing that so much more with uh, the personnel that offenses are putting out and how versatile offenses can be from these Personnels. I mean, Warren, you've been among the top people in talking about how um, offenses are starting to you know, be more efficient and throwing more from heavy personnel. They're running out two tight ends in 12, and they're able to pass. They're using uh, two running backs uh, in 21, and they're able to pass. So when you have defensive personnel that has to match up with those uh, types of players— Um, having guys who can, you know, stay on the field and and play multiple roles, either be, you know, a a pseudo linebacker or, you know, a slot cornerback or a box safety, um, those type of guys are going to give you type of an advantage. Because when the Kansas City Chiefs are running 12 personnel, they're basically in 11 because Travis Kelsey is a a slot receiver. When they're in 11, they're basically in 10 because of Kelsey. Now, when you have a guy like, you know, say Derwin James, who is, you know, the type of defensive player who can just cover uh, any type of ground. He can still um, have responsibilities in the run game. He can stick with Kelsey, you know, in, in the passing game. Uh, He's that type of receiver or he's that type of defender. When you see like what they did in 2018, when James was a rookie, they were running dime with six or more defensive backs, more than any team in the league. Uh, But when Derwin James got hurt last year, they resulted to, They reverted back to a nickel a bunch, but then when when James came back on the field, they were... went dime heavy again and I think you're going to see that with a team like the Chargers you have a team like uh, the Kansas City Chiefs who used Tyron Matthew uh, last year he was basically just played all around uh, that defense and that was especially the case in the playoffs after one Thornhill got hurt uh, Tyron Matthew was more of a, a super defender playing all over the place and I think it's going to be uh, a benefit to like a team like Seattle too that has now Jamal Adams they played more base than any team in the league last year they did a lot of Against eleven too, but they were able to do that because they have guys like um, KJ Wright, Bobby Wagner, who are elite coverage defenders. But now with a guy like Adams uh, and you know the the additions of um, you know uh, Quentin Dunbar and Quandre Diggs who came over last season, now they can be in nickel. It can still serve as base because Jamal Adams can be that. I think it was kind of an overworked Twitter joke that Jamal Adams was Seattle's best pass rusher after the trade uh but that could be a possibility he's great on the blitz uh he should be able to um do that so i think you have guys like that who can just serve so many functions on a defense i think that's going to be an advantage for defense especially early in the season uh when these offenses are probably going to be dictating uh the pace and and everything else so much more than they would be in in a typical season
0: Right. So the couple of guys that you're mentioning here are just stud safeties, right? Like Derwin James. Um, Is it pretty much only that position? that you think is really going to be highlighted this year in in terms of to start the season is to guys that can cover tight ends and be a little bit more multiple on the defensive side of the football. Um, or is there anybody else like we, we had seen for a little while and this is kind of getting away from your original topic, but we had seen for a little while how that, that, that slot corner might become more important because more teams are trotting out 11 personnel and just the rise of the importance of the slot corner. Now I know the Eagles got a new slot corner in Nikhil Roby Coleman, who could be a big difference maker for them this upcoming season, but where do you see it? If you had to pick one or the other, would you, would you rather have that safety who can do a little bit more and cover tight ends and come down in the pass rush? uh, Or would you rather have a really good slot corner?
2: Yeah, I think it's it's shifting toward more teams are being more experimental with guys who have come in and had some of that safety versatility. Uh, you have guys who can play on the back end and move up. Um, and you have guys who have kind of played like a, a slot backer hybrid. I think you look at like, uh, uh, Fred Warner in uh, San Francisco. Um, he's a guy who, who played the slot uh, when he was at BYU. He plays more of a traditional, you know, inside linebacker now with San Francisco, but he's asked to do so much. I mean, there, there's a play that I highlight in the article where he covered Marquise Brown uh, one-on-one last year. And I think there's there's um, you know, places like that where you just have guys where no matter what position you're putting in them in or what responsibility uh, they're going to have, you can trust them to be able to do. It. And I think a lot of that like happens with, you know, the rise of pre-snap motion too, and the ability to to react as a defense. Some of these responsibilities on defense are shifting a, a half a second before the ball snapped. Um, so if you have a guy, you know, like a Warner, but it's more often uh, guys like, um, you know, the Jamal Adams and, and those types of safeties um, who are going to be able to cover. But I think you're, you're seeing that in, you know, the Buda Baker a little bit. Uh, Arizona just brought in uh, Isaiah Simmons. And I think putting the two of them together, I think you're kind of doubling down on something like that. Um, but yeah, I think more often you're seeing these types of safeties. Uh, you got, especially in this past draft, you had guys like a Kyle Duggar, um, who was drafted by New England, uh, Jeremy Chin, uh, who might be playing a lot for Carolina. So I think you're seeing teams start to embrace uh, this type of position a little more. They're giving them more free reign. I think uh, in the past, this would have been more like, uh, we're not totally sure what this guy can do if he doesn't fit this one area, or we don't really know what to do with him. But I think defenses are starting to get a lot more comfortable letting these guys do multiple things. And I think we're going to see that a lot more this season.
0: And the other thing to add to that, that I think is interesting is is just that, this offseason, none of these offensive coordinators or play callers when they're drawing things up have had to actually go out there and put anything on film or anything on tape. So there's an element where these offensive guys could come in very creatively out the gates. I mean, we saw the idiotic play that uh, Baltimore uh, Earl Thomas leaked where they had 22 personal ad- personnel out on the field sent their fullback in motion um and only one wide receiver out there and ran four verts out of that uh with the running back in pistol staying in to help with pass protection i mean nobody does that type of stuff it was he thought that was going to save his job in baltimore by tweeting out (laughs) something like that that was such like a creative play um but that, those are the types of things I think some offenses might try to roll out early on in the season is like just creativity, like using a fullback in a tight end role a little bit or tight end to come help and block as a fullback that is going to catch defenses off guard because there's no film. And therefore, it might make it even more valuable for guys like you're saying, these mul- guys that are multiple, especially from the safety position. Um, that can cover various different positions or have different responsibilities and do those well. And I 100% agree with you on your pre-snap motion take. Uh, more and more offensive coordinators, I think, are going to try to put defenses in compromised positions there and via pre-snap motion. And having those guys that can really excel are going to be very valuable. So just to sum it up, which teams do you think are in those situations this upcoming season. I know you mentioned the acquisition of Jamal Adams. So obviously the Seattle Seahawks, uh, but who else do you think is really going to get an advantage by having one of those key safeties or linebackers that can do multiple
2: things? Yeah, I think it's still going to be the Kansas city. I think they still, um, you know, with Tyron Matthew there and and how they unlocked him. Uh, And I think you just, when you have a guy like that, he makes everyone else around him better too. Uh, The corners on the outside were able to worry about staying on the outside. Daniel Sorensen, when he had to play, was able to play more toward the box. Uh, I think you guys – have guys like that. Um, definitely Seattle with Jamal Adams. I-, I think a full year of Derwin James, I think completely transforms what the Chargers defense uh, can potentially be. Cause like I said, they were a, a base dime defense and then they went to a uh, base nickel without Derwin James. And then they went back to base dime uh, with him on the field again. So I-, I think when you have someone like that and, and all the other, you know, secondary guys uh, they got, cause they also brought in Chris Harris. So we might see even more defensive backs on the field for, the Chargers and when you have a piece like um, Derwin James um, that's going to change especially when you have a front four like um, the Chargers possibly do and then um, yeah I think those are those are the big guys and I think we're going to see some some younger guys like I said the Duggars and um, and Jeremy Chin and I don't know how immediate they'll make an impact but I think they're going to play more as the season goes on.
0: Let's switch. That's just a fascinating topic. We got to check out that article. Is that going up this later this week, Dan?
2: Uh, yeah. So it should be up by the time you are listening to this podcast, if all went well.
0: Awesome. So that's definitely going to be one that you don't want to miss, guys. Up at your football analysis, check out Dan's article on this defensive versatility. TA, let's switch gears and talk a little bit about the Denver Broncos. I know that The media, mainstream media, seems to really like what they're seeing out of Drew Locke for the most part. And the stuff I'm hearing coming out of camp is like – it's like they made the best draft in the NFL with all these wide receivers they got there now. This is just an elite offense. Uh, But you've got some takes that don't really – uh, paint the Denver Broncos in as glowing a picture as what some of the local media are reporting. And I don't necessarily disagree with you one bit. So why don't you fill us in on kind of what you think is going to happen with the 2020 Broncos?
3: Yeah. So there's always that, you know, essentially that it team that you hear about um, in the off season know the Browns were that last year. I think Denver is getting a lot of that this year, as you mentioned, just because of the kind of the shiny new toys, um that they added in in uh, in the draft with kj hamler and jerry judy to go along with uh, drew Locke, and you know they signed uh, melvin gordon but you know i just think that of all off seasons we've talked about this you know kind of ad nauseum this is the one off season that you, you need the continuity um on offense especially at the skill position so you've got drew Locke, who you know what he started five games last year and you know had one really really good performance against houston but otherwise was pretty awful i mean he He had under six yards per attempt in his other four starts. Um, Didn't really do much to to wow me personally. Um, So he's essentially still in his rookie season. And you have to put him behind an offensive line, which has three new starters. The entire right side of the line is is new. Jawan James was expected to be their their right tackle. He was a big uh, free agent acquisition last season who was hurt. Um, But he opted out because of COVID. So they assigned DeMar Dotson to, um, to take over and right tackle, but you know, he was out there for a reason. So, um, and they've got a, a rookie center in Cushenberry. So you've got three fifth-year of Your offensive line is brand new. You've got, uh, you know, Hamler and Judy. Yeah. They're exciting uh, pieces. when you talk about uh, you know, on paper with the speed, but Hamler already has a hamstring injury um, you know, that's a type of uh, injury that I think is going to linger for, for a while. Um, you got Noah Fant, who's a second-year tight end. So you just have a lot of young, um, new pieces. And this is not the offseason to do that. And you've got a, you know, a new offensive coordinator in, in Pat Shermer. So combine all that, and I just don't think that this is from an offensive perspective. This is the, the season to really um, you know bet on a team like Denver uh, to shine. I mean, their, their win total is you can get it at uh, uh, under eight you know, with a little bit of juice, I think, at 130. Um, at places and I think that's a good good number to go under it's hard for me to imagine them going nine and seven or better Um, and they're in a tough division obviously they might be one of the the best divisions in in the NFL uh, with the Chiefs obviously up there and the Chargers are always um, a competitive team I think the Raiders actually um, gonna surprise some people um, a little bit as well you know they've got talent so um, you know tough division they've got a top five most difficult schedule I think by your metrics Warren um, you know outside of the division it's a tough um tough schedule and then you know yeah they added Jarrell Casey who's gonna you know make that defensive line really good I think that's the, definitely the bright spot you know their secondary could be a question mark they added their number one corner and he struggled big time with Jacksonville last year is 111th in yards per snap allowed and, and was 87th in QB rating allowed so um you know I'm just not sure that this is the uh the season to, to bet on on Denver I just think there's way too many question marks and um, you know, I'm not sure Shermer is the guy to uh, incorporate a uh, um, a you know big big play spread offense with a with a young quarterback like Drew Locke. So I think the under here is is the play. It's probably my favorite uh, win total of the off season.
0: The other thing that I think is interesting here is if you look at what their lines are in their road games uh, right now, they're favored by one point over the Jets. Um, they're a two point dog and a 1.5 point dog in road games in Atlanta and at the Raiders. Um, So not catching the full three. Now we know that home field is no longer worth three in the NFL, especially in today's age. We don't know if they'll have fans in the stadium come November. That's to be determined, but that's when both of those games are occurring. But in either case, they're not They're being forecast as a better team than both the Falcons and the Raiders in those games on the road. Um, They're a three-point favorite on the road against the Carolina Panthers um, in December, and they're only catching one point on the road against the Chargers in December. So they're getting massive respect on the road this season thus far on the point spread if you're just looking to try to bet – some individual games where they aren't catching um three points. So I think that's really fascinating. Um but Dan, I know you've got some thoughts on the 2020 Broncos as they currently sit. Why don't you fill us in? Yeah, I
2: think we're getting a lot of Drew Locke hype here, and that's kind of what's running this this Broncos bandwagon uh, as much as it is. There's a lot of hype and and optimism around Drew Locke. And, I mean, he finished the season well with, with the five games he started, four and one. The one loss was pretty bad to Kansas City. But um, you know, when I went back and did the the year two leap, uh, quarterback article that we discussed uh, on our last podcast. We didn't really discuss Drew Locke on, on the podcast. Uh, one of the things I found interesting is, is Locke did play well. He, you know, I think by EPA per play was um, the highest among these rookies, but again, that was a sh- much shorter sample than everyone else got. Um, but a, a lot of that was so much was how watered down that offense was. And I kind of knew Drew Locke was a guy who. Uh, is prone to uh, make a mistake or make a bad decision there. And I think they did a lot to really suppress that last year. Um, And while there were some good plays in it, uh, it was really, that was an offense with the training wheels on. And I think they're going to open that up a little more uh, this year. I think there's going to be a little more room for him to uh, make some errors. And I think we're going to see more of that than we did last year. Um, And yeah, and like uh, TA said with uh, Pat Shermer, uh, someone who uh, unfortunately watched the Giants uh, quite closely. Uh, he's not, I mean, I think we kind of bring that the Case Keenum 2017 season of Pat Shermer. And I think that really, you know, paints this uh, picture of Pat Shermer being a really good offensive coordinator, but that really hasn't been the case throughout his career. Um, he's been with some really bad quarterbacks, but he was also, you know, in charge of picking some of those bad quarterbacks. Um, so I, I don't think it's super quarterback friendly. I think we will see a little more play action and things like that. Um, but I think we're a little uh, just completely um, ahead of ourselves on some of this Drew Lock hype. And, and I don't think that's going to be an immediate payoff in year two.
0: I can't agree more, Dan. I think the one guy who probably will meet expectations year two would be Kyler Murray, as you indicated in the article. But I think that Drew Locke is is a little bit overhyped. And I think the team just – is going to need another season here. Not the ideal situation for so many new pieces getting involved. Uh, like T.A. mentioned, and I tend to agree, that this is a season where I'll let other people buy the Denver Broncos. I won't be looking to do that, especially in off-season wagering, um, as well as early in on in the season. Um, I want to talk a little bit briefly about the Indianapolis Colts because I think they're a team that is still not really getting very much respect both in the betting markets as well as just like league-wide. If you talk about who are the best play callers in the NFL, not very many people are going to mention a guy like Frank Reich. But, you know, I think Arthur Smith down in Tennessee is also underrated. But I think Frank Reich in Indianapolis, he is their head coach. But look at what he's had to work with the last two offseasons. He goes into the 2018 season – not knowing if Andrew Luck's even going to be able to be their quarterback. He's throwing a tennis ball at the time. Uh, Ends up dialing back a strategy to get the most out of Andrew Luck in that 2018 season. Then he's getting ready for like this. They they posted obviously double-digit wins. They're getting ready to build on what they did and the success they had in 2018, entering 2019, when they find out all of a sudden Andrew Luck's retiring. He can't overcome this calf injury that he's been suffering with and trying to rehab. And all of a sudden, a couple of weeks before the season, we have to be starting Jacoby Brissett. Now, yes, Jacoby Brissett was their quarterback back in 2017, but Reich wasn't there. So this is the first that Reich is actually working with Jacoby in games as QB number one. And They were the number two seed through the first half of the season in the AFC. They beat the Chiefs, they beat the Titans, and they beat the Texans. Three playoff teams that they faced, won every single one of those games with Jacoby Brissett as quarterback. Down the stretch, after the first half of the season, I mentioned they were the number two seed. Down the stretch, in their nine games that they played after that point in time, they led after the third quarter or entering halftime in seven of those nine games, they should have won, have produced a winning record. If you're leading at halftime in seven out of nine games, but they ended up winning only two of those games. They just had some terrible injury luck and terrible uh, luck and variance in some of these games late that I don't think is going to be the issue this year. And if you look at this team and – the roster that they've got especially from an offensive skill position we discuss this i think on one of our other podcasts ty hilton missed a ton of time um they didn't have paris campbell whatsoever so now they're getting back three wide receivers basically who didn't really start the full season at all last year ty hilton paris campbell wasn't even there last last year um, of course they had their First draft pick this season that they absolutely love at wide receiver. And I think they added other players to add some depth. Jonathan Taylor is going to be a great running back. People are maybe forgetting a little bit about Marlon Mack, but both those guys, I don't know about fantasy value, Rich, as to which guy you think has the higher ceiling based on ADP, but just based on regular football and betting, it's a great one-two punch for this team to have. It's going to give you a lot of options and a lot of versatility and a lot of freshness out there on the field and of course you've got philip rivers but if you look at this team there's only five games this entire season where they're favored by over the standard three point uh home field advantage um they are and one of those games is a three and a half point favorite So there's only four games where they're favored by more than three and a half points at all this season. One is against the Jets at home. One is against the Bengals at home and one is against the Jaguars at home. Uh, They also are favored on the road against the Jaguars by a touchdown. The rest of these games, I can't tell you the number of times that they're at home um, as an underdog or just a minuscule, you know, one point favorite. So I think there's some value on the Indianapolis Colts from a preseason perspective, as well as on the Indianapolis Colts from a in-season perspective, being able to bet on these guys, whether it's like on a per game basis right now, because you can bet weeks one to 17 at some different sports books. It used to only be weeks one to 16, but some spots have up there even uh, week 17, I think. But TA, what do you think about the Indianapolis Colts and Frank Wright?
3: Yeah, I agree. I like Frank Reich a lot, and I think this is just uh, set up perfectly um, for uh, for the Colts to make a run. I mean, you know, here's the thing with Rivers. You know, I've <laughs> I've backed Rivers and the Chargers a lot for the last handful of years. Anyone who follows me on Twitter knows that, and so he makes games exciting. That's for sure. But you know, everyone talks about how much he's lost it. I just think it was a product of a broken offensive line. I mean, he's had some of the worst offensive lines in the NFL for the last you know, 10 seasons. I mean, if you look at uh, pass blocking efficiency grades uh, for the last six years, according to PFF, I mean, the Chargers have ranked 31st, 29th, 23rd, 31st, 32nd, 29th, and Rivers is one of the most immobile quarterbacks we've ever seen. So, you know, the guy is, um, you know, playing kind of handicapped with one arm behind his back because he just has no protection. Um, But now he's got an offensive line with, with the Colts that is, you know, arguably the number one O-line in the whole NFL. I mean, he's got two guys, uh, Costanzo and uh, Quentin Nelson, who are um, you know at the top of the list in terms of um, pass blockers in the NFL. And then if you look, Phillip against the AFC South, he's just completely shredded that division um, against non-Indianapolis Colts defenses in the AFC South. Last year, he completed um, 67% of his passes for 320 yards a game. yards per attempt, seven touchdowns, no interceptions since 2011. Now this blew me away since 2011 against the AFC South um, minus the Colts. He's thrown 39 touchdowns and only four interceptions. I mean, it's, it's crazy what he's done to this division. So I think he still has a lot in him. He's a good quarterback. He's a good guy to have um, in a shortened off season like this. You know, he knows the Frank Reich offense back uh, from back in, um, uh, in his chargers days. So, um, I think he's the type of guy who can, you know, control uh, a huddle and he's good with young, young players. So I think this is just a set up to be a really good um, season for, for the, the Colts offense and the Colts in general. Um, and if you look I, you know, I, I, you know, take a, take a look at some of the depth charts from last year and coming back to this season. Um, the Colts have the number one, most uh, starts or most snaps uh, from among the offensive line that is returning um, from last year. So they do have that continuity factor that I think we've talked about a handful of times here, how important that is from an offensive line perspective. And they're really good. So a lot of good players that are back. So I think that's all positives here for the Colts.
0: Rich, I know you had a couple of nuggets here on Frank Reich. Uh, do you agree with me? And, and what do you think about Reich in this upcoming
1: season? Yeah, I'm on board with the Colts here. I mean, just the, the thing I like about Frank Reich the most, because it's one of my pet peeves of football, is just how play callers call plays You know, near the opponent's goal line, and they kind of come out of their shoes. And Frank Reich has actually gone the other direction. He's actually the Colts. The two years he's been there, they have thrown the ball 51% of the time inside the five. It's the fifth highest rate in the NFL uh, they have the most passing touchdowns uh, in the NFL from, in, from that you know area of the field the past two years. And it's one thing to say, oh, in 2018, well, yeah, they, they threw that area with Andrew Luck. But with Brian Hoyer and Jacoby Brissett, they also led the NFL in passing touchdowns uh, with 11 inside the five last year as well, which which led the NFL. So, I mean, I love seeing a, a guy that just doesn't get inside the five and just like kind of turtles up like Kellen Moore uh, you know, did in Dallas last year where the, you know, Dallas had just an explosive offense, and every time they got in the red zone just reverted back to, like, like the old Dallas way of just relying on Ezekiel Elliott, and you know they were one of the lowest. They had the lowest passing rate inside the ten in the NFL last year. Dallas did, even though their whole offense was predicated on Dak Prescott up until that point. Uh, so I just like seeing that you know Frank Reich is is obviously this goes back to you know. Uh, you know, his, his days in Philadelphia, you know, some of the creative things that got him this job in the first place. But uh, I just like seeing a guy that, you know, gets near the paint and isn't just like going to do all the same token things that have been unsuccessful for decades in the NFL. 100% (laughs) could
0: could not agree with you more there. I think uh, the the more innovative you are, there's a lot of room for that uh, to improve efficiency. And I'm glad like you, that he looks to take advantage of those spots. Dan, I know you just wrote up a Rivers article. Do you have any nuggets to share on some of the stuff that TA was talking about and just your enjoyment of what you think Rivers might be able to provide this year?
2: Yeah, I kind of think the the mammification of, you know, Philip Rivers having the ball down by a score with two minutes left in the game has kind of just uh, painted Rivers uh, as, you know, that's what he is. But really, he was he, quite good. And I think the the idea that he fell off a cliff last year. I was a little uh, overblown last year, especially from a clean pocket. uh, He was one of the best quarterbacks uh, in the league. Uh, 0.27 EPA per attempt, uh, 58.9% positive play rate. Um, And that, that was good. And we know, play from a clean pocket is what's going to translate better from year to year. Now, like T.A. said, also he's going from the Chargers uh, offensive line to the Colts offensive line. He's already someone who is going to get the ball out quickly, and he kind of did that because he had to uh, in previous seasons, uh, but now he's going to either be able to do that and still push the ball um, into the intermediate deep areas of the field now, and he's going to have that protection uh, to hold up. I mean, the big problem is uh, he was atrocious with pressure uh, last year. He's a play rate dropped to 35.8%. And we know all quarterbacks get worse under pressure, but there was a huge drop uh, from Rivers, but I think he's going to get um, a better, uh, better surrounding offensive line. He's going to have better pockets that he can stand in a little longer. I think if you are concerned with Philip Rivers, this kind of uh, the deep accuracy um, and and his arm and whether that is falling off, that's possible. I, I think we took uh, 2019 to be such a fall because 2018 was like a career year for him in terms of completion percentage and EPA per attempt on, on deep attempts. Um, So that fell back down a little below his career average, but not significantly below his career average last year. So I think you can still get away with it. And you look at the, the personnel in Los Angeles and with the chargers, uh, his deep threat was really, you know, Mike Williams who can make great contested catches, but there's a reason he's making those contested catches because there's not really separation. Uh, if you have T Y Hilton who can, you know, get behind a defensive back a little more, and maybe there's some open throws that can potentially open up a little more for rivers there. He was still one of the best intermediate throwers uh, in the league last year. So I think that's going to work uh, with Hilton with those tight ends with Michael Pittman, potentially. Um, I think you're going to see short efficient passes to, uh, the running backs, especially potentially Naheem Himes. Uh, so I think there's a lot left in the tank here. And like you said, I think Frank Reich's going to know that they've worked together before in the past. Uh, so I think there's a lot that can mesh together uh, for a really good offense in Indianapolis.
0: I agree hundred percent. I'm looking forward to the season and what they can do in that division where there's a lot of question marks about some of the teams in there. Uh, the the league already, or the bookmakers rather, seem to be down on the Houston Texans a bit with their preseason win total and expectations. The Jags certainly have a lot of question marks there. And it's really, you know, can Ryan Tannehill repeat? Can Arthur Smith continue to get all this efficiency out of this run game? And, and was Derrick Henry running to the ground, or is he going to be able to continue to have another productive season? So lots of good questions in the AFC South this year. I'm looking forward to seeing what Frank Reich and these Colts are able to do. Guys, with that, we're going to wrap up this episode, episode 10 of the Sharp Angles podcast. Want to remind you again that weekly packages are up on the website. Go check those out up at sharpfootballanalysis.com. Jump on board for a weekly subscription right now. And be sure to be following this entire crew up on Twitter. You can follow Rich on Twitter at Lord Reeves. You can follow Dan on Twitter at Dan Pizzuta. You can follow T.A. on Twitter at Cleve T.A. And I'm Warren Sharp. Thanks again for checking out our podcast. And we look forward to talking to you again next week.